I invite you to take a Bible and turn in the New Testament to the book of Philippians. The particular passage is on page 980 in these Bibles in the pews that we have. Uh, I want to mention one thing. I began a new session of the uh, six-week inquirers class last week. Today's the last day to join if you'd like to come. And uh, that class meets at 1015. It's in the building right beside this, the administration building on the first floor. Today's the last day to be able to join. Philippians chapter 1, though we'll be looking at verses 12 through 18, talking about the advance of the gospel. The Apostle Paul is writing. It's, it's been about 10, 10 years since he planted this church. He is in prison at this time, uh, most likely in Rome, and he's writing back to them, and he says this, in beginning in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. The most popular sport in America is football, by far. And that's kind of fascinating because as far as major sports go, American football is relatively new. And it grew out of two ancient sports, rugby and soccer, that had been around for centuries. And football as we know it, as Americans, when we talk about football, it originated on college campuses in the late 1800s. In fact, in November of 1869, players from Princeton and Rutgers held the first intercollegiate football contest in, in New Jersey. And they played more of a soccer-style game with rules that were taken from the London Football Association. And then other schools like Harvard and Yale they stuck to a more rugby style of play. And then on the scene appeared a man named Walter Camp. And Walter Camp was a student at Yale, undergraduate and then later a medical student. And in the late 1870s, he was the captain of the Yale football team. The captain at that time pretty much functioned like a coach today. And he introduced some key rules and innovations to what was a fledgling game at that time. He did away with an opening scrum like they have in rugby. And he also introduced a requirement that the team had to give up the ball if they did not move it so much distance down the field within a certain number of downs. He introduced the 11-man team, the quarterback position, the line of scrimmage, offensive signal calling, and the scoring scale that is used in football today. Now, if you've ever tried to explain football, American football, to a person who knows nothing about it, it is very difficult. 
I have on several occasions, especially my children as they were growing up, and you always think, where do I start? And here's where you start. You start with the goal in mind. What I mean by that is, okay, there's the field. You see it. You see that area down there? That's called the end zone. That one down there. The idea is that that team's trying to advance the ball to that end zone, and this team's trying to advance the ball to that end zone. Do you get that? <laughs> Just that part. Now we can get into all the details. But that's essentially it, to advance or to, to move the ball. It's the very term that Paul uses here that his imprisonment had led to the advance, not of a ball, but of the gospel, of the good news of Christ. If you've been here the past couple of weeks as we've looked at Philippians, you remember that if you want to read about the founding of this church, the very beginning, you go to the book of Acts, chapter 16, and it tells how Paul with his two companions, Timothy and Silas, they went to this city. They were really on the way to somewhere else. They were just passing through Philippi. They go to a, a prayer meeting that's being held by a river on the Sabbath day, and there's a group of women praying, and they speak to them. Paul speaks to them about the the Old Testament scriptures and how they were fulfilled in Christ. And a, at least one of the women puts her faith in Christ. She becomes a, a Christian. And her name was Lydia. And she's a, a business person. She sells dyes. And she invites them to use her, her home, her house, as a base of operations, which they do. And lots of things happen. More and more people hear the gospel and are converted, and including a young girl who's a fortune teller or a woman who's a fortune teller because she's possessed by a demon and she makes money for her master and Paul casts the demon out of her and she loses that capacity to tell fortunes and the, the master now because of his lack of income or loss of it is angry and he has them thrown in jail and there in that jail at about midnight it tells us all this is in Acts 16 that they're singing and praying and the prisoners are listening to them and there's an earthquake and the, the gates of the cells are opened and the jailer is going to kill himself. And Paul and the others say, no, don't do that. We're here. We've not escaped. And he calls for lights. And so lights, candles or torches are brought in and they, he takes them. He asks them, what must I do to be saved? He'd been hearing them. He'd been listening to them in the time they'd been there. And then he, he and his household are all baptized later that night. And then, and then um, they leave uh, Philippi, but that church was established and this was not the first communication Paul had had with them. There had been a, other communication and probably at least two times he'd gone back to Philippi, but now he writes this letter. And he's doing it from a, a Roman prison. So let me tell you now how he ended up in Rome because that's a very key part of this. He had gone there as a missionary. We know from early in his ministry, Paul had wanted to go to Rome to preach the gospel. In fact, he wrote in the book of Romans chapter one, he said, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. It was the most strategic city in the world. And he had set his sights that he wanted to go there as a missionary to, to preach the gospel. Well, here's how God got him there. He's illegally arrested in the temple in Jerusalem, and then he becomes a focal point of both political tension and religious tension, and people are plotting against him, and so he remains a prisoner because of all this and the controversy surrounding it for two years there. 
And as a Roman citizen, he had a many rights that were unique to Roman citizens, but one was that he could appeal his case to Caesar, which he does. And so they said, okay, you've appealed it to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. That means you're going to Rome. So they put him on a ship, and the ship is wrecked. It sinks off the island of Malta. So he and the others are on the island of Malta for some three months. They finally end up then traveling again on another ship. They get back, they get to Rome in chains. And once he gets to Rome, he's imprisoned for two years before he sees Caesar. <laughs> I think when he said earlier, I want to preach the gospel at Rome, he probably had something else in mind as to how he would get there. But they're concerned about him. The Philippians are. They've heard. He's been in custody. He's been in prison for so long. He's in chains. So what does he say? He says here that all these things have worked for the advancement of the gospel. That's his main concern. So he looks at his imprisonment. He looks at his suffering, his custody, his limits on travel and being able to see as many people as he'd like to, his limits on preaching, he says it's advanced the gospel. It has moved it forward. Now let me just veer off for just a moment and mention a few things the Bible says about suffering. This is just a, I'm scratching the surface. The Bible describes suffering as many different kinds and with many different purposes. And God has different purposes as to why he permits certain things to come into our lives. Some suffering is corrective. As it says in Proverbs, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor be weary of his correction. For those whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. So sometimes we suffer because God is reproving us or correcting us out of his love. Sometimes suffering is to awaken us to the needs and feelings of others. This church sent me to Eastern Europe years ago to visit some missionaries, and I was in the Ukraine, one of the places. I was with four other men, and we were in the Ukraine, and we were with these American Christian workers that were there as part of a movement that was teaching in the public schools. And it was, schools were out that week, and so we were staying in one of those communist apartments, you know, those big buildings that they all, they're in every communist country, it seems like, and we're staying in their apartment, and I read the handbook that they had, that the, uh, the ministry had for each of these people. And it was telling them basically how to function in another culture and in that culture. And I remember, I, I don't remember the other things, but I remember this. You have got to learn that most of your time is going to be spent on acquiring and preparing food. So we went to the meat market. And there was no refrigeration, trust me. And it was fresh. It was very fresh. And then they would have to take it home and they would have to put it in a kind of bleach solution to get it ready to, to cook later that night. And, and, and I thought, I don't know how much they're paying these people, but whatever it is, it isn't enough. You know, when I had an empathy, there was a degree of suffering that, that was going on for me to, to awaken me to the needs and to be empathetic toward toward what these particular missionaries were going through. Another type of suffering is instructive. But Paul's suffering here is not corrective. It wasn't to awaken him to the needs of others. There's no indication of that. There's no indication it was, it was instructive. 
his suffering as a prisoner, as being in chains, and all the restrictions that brought with it, strictly was for the advancement of the gospel. And I think it takes a very mature believer to see that when we go through it. Because for most of us, it's all about us. What is God teaching me? What, rather than backing up and saying, what is God doing here? What is God doing in my neighborhood? Or what is God doing in my workplace because of what I am going through? We may not know the answer to that question, but Paul saw, and it was because the gospel was advanced. The word advance in this case means a pioneer advance. It was a term used of like military engineers that would go before and clear out clear out the jungle or obstacles or build bridges that the troops were going to need. They were, in a sense, pioneering, cutting the, the trail so that the military behind them would be able to go. Paul saw himself as advancing in a place where the gospel had not been. Now, it's very fascinating for those of you that may not know much about the Bible. This is the man who hated Christians earlier in his life. This was a man who was a persecutor of Christians. He not only wanted to see them in jail, he wanted to see them dead. And he was dramatically converted, dramatically. And then after a seven year period where God has him, or three years being taught the scriptures and being discipled by some others and being established in his faith, God, God then sends him as a missionary first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So he's taking the gospel to those who have not heard. What was the message? What is the gospel when he says here the good news? I want you to know that it is advanced. What has become, it has served to advance the gospel. Well, he, he came to understand that you and I are created by God to have life with him, but we have all sinned. We have all broken his laws. We have missed the mark. We've committed crimes against him and our thoughts and our words and our deeds. And he says the punishment or the wages of sin is death. And that he must punish uh, sin. And there's nothing we can do, even though it's natural for us to think, well, I, if I'm a good person, if I do all the right things, if I just love people or uh, act nice to people or religious and go to church or pray or do nice things, give things away, give money away, then God will, God will see that and he'll know the motive of my heart and he will accept me. Uh, and yet there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. Now that, that's the bad news, but the good news is that, that God in his love and mercy and grace, he, he sent a redeemer. He sent his son, Jesus, who did keep God's law in every respect. He lived a perfect life and he never sinned and he allowed himself to be arrested and tried and crucified on a Roman cross. But it was as a substitute for others. And when he was on that cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, God put all of the sins of his people on him and he died in my place. He took the punishment I deserve. His body was taken down from the cross. It was placed in a tomb. His enemies thought, well, that's the last we'll see of him. But three days later, he rose physically, bodily from the grave. Death could not hold him because he paid the penalty for death. And then over a period of 40 days, he appeared to several hundred, if not a couple of thousand people. And before he ascended to heaven, now this is the key part, before he ascended to heaven, he told his followers to go to all peoples, to go to all the world and tell them what Christ had done. 
and how they can be forgiven through faith in him. That was what now motivated Paul. That was the good news that he was preaching. So have you received the gift of eternal life? I mean, what a shame it would be to hear this sermon and think about, well, this is what worked out in, in a Roman prison if you yourself have not received this gift of eternal life. So how was it advanced? He mentions two key areas. One, the Imperial Guard, also called the Praetorian Guard, the Palace Guard. They were the elite of the elite of the Roman army. The Green Berets, the Army Rangers, the Navy Seals of their day, the qualifications physically were at the top. They were at the peak of physical conditioning. Membership in this group was limited to some 9,000 soldiers, so it was much sought after. They received double pay. They lived in different conditions than other soldiers did. Their duties included protecting not only Caesar, the emperor, but court officials, senators, other Roman officials, and standing guard over prisoners who had appealed their cases to Caesar. That's how they come to guard the Apostle Paul. It wasn't because it was Paul, it was because he had appealed his case to Caesar. And so now he's in the care for at least two years waiting for his case to be brought up before Caesar while he's in, in confinement in Rome. And he has some freedom of movement and he can have visitors. And while all this is happening, the guards are with him working shifts. So there would be at least one guard for however long the shift was, whether it was four hours or six hours or eight hours, and then another guard would come, and then another guard would come, and then another guard would come, and they would hear him talk to people. They would hear him dictate things that his scribe, his amanuensis, would write down. They would talk to him as he would ask them questions about themselves. And in this process, over this period of time, the gospel goes not only to them, but then through them to others. They would have been transferred out to other places. Not only their families, but they would go to other locations. Well, you're being sent down to this other city now. And what they had learned, some had been converted, now it spreads. <laughs> First generation Christians, isn't, isn't that exciting when you think about that? It just all went out from being chained to this guy or being watch, watching over this guy who's in chains named Paul. So he bore witness. God uses his means to reach people. And God's plan in this case was to have Paul arrested and in confinement so that all these soldiers would be exposed to the gospel. And he's able to say there in the passage, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else. The second result is that the brothers had grown in courage. I didn't write down the verse. Verse 14, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So often... You and I know that, that what limits us from speaking about Christ is probably fear. It may be fear that, oh, I'm going to say the wrong thing. It may be fear that this person may ask me a question and I, I won't know the answer and I'm just going to look like a fool. Or fear that I'll be misunderstood and I'll be labeled judgmental or 
um, arrogant or a hater or whatever it might be. So we deal, most of us do, with, with fear. It may be fear of losing a job, especially if you're in a corporate environment right now. Uh, I was talking with a fellow who's in a large corporation and for many years, and he said, listen, in my job, uh, we're transported on a van in the mornings, and if there are two men making out on that van and you say a word, you're, you're, you'll be fired. So it, those in the corporate environment, which is not so much in Macon, their, their heads are really on a block. So we have, we have to be very careful. And, and we, we live with this fear. So how do we deal with this? Paul would have had a fear, uh, fear about that. I think we learn to talk to people, and i tell you what I ask, and I can do this as a pastor maybe easier, but I, in all my years, I've never had anybody do anything but seem to appreciate this question. After I get to know them a little bit, let me ask you, do you have a, a church you're involved in? <laughs> nobody's going to be angry with that question. And it opens all sorts of doors. The person may want to talk about it. But, and I don't say, are you a church member? Because that's 90% of people in the South. I say, are you involved in a church? Uh, or have you found a church community here, if they've maybe not lived too long? And, and it, it opens the door. And the person may want, want to walk through it, or they may not. Um, it, just learning to ask non-threatening questions that may lead somewhere else. So boldness often is helped when we see others doing this. And by them hearing about Paul and what was happening with, among the imperial guard, the brothers outside who are not imprisonment have felt courage. I'm not alone in this. I'm, I'm one of many, or look what God is doing. Maybe he could use me as well if I initiate conversation with another person. How would your life as a believer be different if you were not affected by fear? Fear in the office, fear in the school. Sometimes it's just one student taking a stand for Christ that rallies others to shake off their fear. The other result in verses 15 to 18 is that his critics had become vocal. I won't go into all of this, but there's uh, some stuff going on here that we're not told the background, but there are some that wanted to preach about Christ in some kind of vindictive way against Paul. Maybe they were jealous. Um, we aren't sure. But in verse 18, he, he basically says, look, I don't care what their motives are. I just rejoice that Jesus is preached and that the gospel is made known. He's happy with that end result that more people are hearing about Jesus Christ. So I want to conclude with this, and that's to ask, what about your circumstances? What, what is there about your circumstances that may make you think, I am really limited. I can't, I can't advance the gospel either because I have... I'm at a computer monitor all day, and I'd rather be out among people, or I, I've got a physical limitation, like I just had my knee replaced, <laughs> or uh, I'm, a care I'm a caregiver, I've got a, a disabled child, or I've got an elderly parent, or someone that I care for, and it takes all my time and energy, or I, 
you know, there's just all the, or I've got physical limitations. I wish I was younger. If I was younger, I could do it. If I, I wish I was older, then I could do it. We, we all may, may feel that we have these limit, limitations that then in a sense are chains that keep us from doing that. But maybe the Lord has given you those very circumstances, just like he gave the Apostle Paul in chains, and he will use you in order to advance his kingdom. Y'all know the name Warren Wearsby? Warren Wearsby was a Bible teacher and conference speaker. He pastored the Moody Church in uh, Chicago. Yeah, he lived, he, he died at age 89 three years ago. So his ministry, uh, my, his ministry to me is primarily through books. I've got these two volumes of, of books that, that he wrote on covering the, the New Testament. Warren Wiersbe was in a serious car accident, and the way he wrote about it, while he was in the hospital for quite some time, he began to receive letters from a man he'd never met. And this man would write him, not every day, but he'd write to encourage him and say he was praying for him, and, and he said, I just found these letters encouraging, real encouraging. So when he was well enough, he got out of the hospital, and he said, I'll look this man up. He said, much to my surprise, the man was blind, he was diabetic, he had had one leg amputated, and he was the full-time caregiver for his elderly mother. And he said, that man did not let any of those limitations affect his advancing the gospel. Maybe this week you and I can look at our situations and say, okay, Lord, I see this as a problem. I see this as a limitation. But how might you be using and how might you use in the future this very thing to advance the gospel? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our elder brother in Christ, the Apostle Paul. And in a, in a roundabout way, we are here today because that gospel went not only to all those men, but ultimately to other places and ultimately to Europe and ultimately to the United States. And uh, we are here today. So we, we pray for, for ourselves, ask that you would apply this to our hearts, that you would cause it to bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.